Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes. I'm Katie Balls, The Spectator's Deputy Political Editor and your host this week. On the show today. Austria, Germany and the Czech Republic have enforced selective lockdowns. That is, lockdowns for people who don't want to take the Covid vaccine. Is this fair? Phrasal debate an Oxford medical ethics professor. Is Boris losing his sheen? James Forsyth and Jeremy Vine will be on the show to tell us what they made of that CBI speech. Then we'll head across the channel. Freddie Gray spoke to Eric Zemmour, the French presidential candidate, at the weekend. Does he pose a serious challenge to Macron? Then we'll look to China. A tennis player, Peng Shui, seemed to have gone missing, but she has re-emerged in a series of so-called proof-of-life videos. Is the West making a deal out of nothing? We'll speak to Vince Cable and Cindy Yu. And finally, what makes a classic book? In a few years, might Sally Rooney be on the list of classics of our generation or not? Before we get going, if you enjoy Spectator TV, do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the red subscribe button at the bottom of the video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. First, is the lockdown of the unvaccinated ever justified? In this week's cover piece, Ross Clark looks at the protests starting across Europe because of the threat of another lockdown. Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator, joins me now, together with Dominic Wilkinson, a professor of medical ethics at the University of Oxford. Fraser, Ross writes about lockdowns for the unvaccinated in Europe. Um, to start, what is happening on the continent right now? Well, the COVID situation is getting quite significantly worse. Austria has seen the steepest increases. We're now seeing um, hospitals full yet again. Very familiar stories to this time last year. The difference being that we had thought in the summer that Britain was getting the worst of it and that the Europe, continental Europe seemed to be relatively clear. This goes to show that COVID keeps surprising us. And now we're getting the same conversations in the continent, whether to lock down or not, uh, but also whether to have lockdowns of the unvaccinated. This was Austria's innovation a couple of weeks ago. And the political language in the continent is changing also quite significantly. There's now a phrase which is being heard in, in Germany, in Bavaria, in the Czech Republic, but this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. In other words, that the trouble is being brought um, to the countries by people who are refusing to get vaccinated. Uh, and now this is beginning to collide in a very interesting and rather alarming way with existing political divisions in Europe. In Germany, for example, the unvaccinated uh, disproportionately tend to live in um, East Germany and vote for AFD, the kind of the, the far right populist group. And the AFD, so you're seeing this kind of overlap between what we would typically regard as far-right populist, fairly or unfairly, and people who are now complaining against vaccine mandates and the overall issue of civil liberties. And that's something that Nicholas Farrell looks at in this week's magazine, the paradox of um, parties that can pretty much genuinely be called fascist com make, uh, campaigning in the cause of liberty against the sort of left-leaning centrists who are, I guess, against um, the civil liberty argument and more in favour of lockdowns and compulsory vaccination. So we're seeing very strange dynamics. But as Ross argues in his cover piece, it seems to be merging very quickly into a kind of culture war. And it's not just in the British press that's making this point. Um, Henrik Broder has written a very good piece in, in Die Welt today in, in, in German, where he makes the point that the language now is almost as if you're talking about the heretics, the witches, the deserters, the kind of a subset in society on whom our woes can be blamed. He says that politics gets into a very dangerous place when the debate goes down that line. 
And that's what we're seeing the debate slide into in the continent. Now, Dominic, Fraser mentions the fact that this is almost being referred to as a pandemic of the unvaccinated in certain countries. And Austria's decision, uh, that they're probably the first to have this idea of a lockdown just for the unvaccinated. Do you think that raises a moral dilemma? Well, there are a series of moral dilemmas that we've faced across the pandemic. <clears throat> Broadly speaking, one of them that that we're seeing raising its head again is is the the balance between safeguarding well-being and health of the population and protecting the liberties of individuals to make decisions for themselves and to go about their normal lives. Um, there's also a, a kind of third factor, which is about treating people equally. So we've we've referred to this as a, a, tr- a pandemic trilemma of choices between freedom, uh, health or mortality uh, and equality. And you can't have all of those values. You make your choices and then you get the results, uh, uh, both in terms of uh, the ethical values that you sacrifice and, of course, the, the impact on, on population and on excess mortality. And Dominic, on that, do you think that you, it is more morally justifiable to have uh, you know, a lockdown just for the unvaccinated if you're thinking about you know, the greater good, say? So in terms of uh, lockdowns and selective lockdowns, selective lockdowns are in effect just uh, uh, an extension of what has been debated for some time, which is the notion of vaccine passports. And basically that's about treating people differently based on their risk of transmission of the virus and, and prior to that, the, the, whether or not they've had the vaccine. Uh, now, there's a, a variety of questions about that. Is, is that. Is this an effective way of managing the vaccine? Is it proportionate to the risks uh, at stake? Is it necessary? Are there other ways around it? Those those three issues, effectiveness, proportionality and necessity are key ethical considerations in working out whether this is appropriate. It's useful to think about the alternative. So if if you've got a a massive spike in cases, as as they're seeing in some parts of Europe, uh, and your health system is seriously under threat, the alternative is to institute a generalised lockdown, as indeed some European countries uh, are having to at this point in time, or to say uh, we're going to spare from that lockdown those who are at lower risk of ending up in hospital or of transmitting the virus. Uh, in, for many, the, the idea of a selective lockdown will look more attractive than bringing the whole community again to a screaming halt and sending everybody back to their Zoom offices and uh, and their homes. Fraser, do you agree with that? It's a more attractive proposition? Uh, no, I do think the level of social segregation the vaccine passports and selective lockdowns proposes is a, a really deeply disturbing notion. Uh, again, we need to look at who's on the right and the wrong side of this vaccine divide. In Britain, if you're poor, you're far more likely to be unvaccinated than if you're rich. If you're black, you're something like three or four times more likely to be unvaccinated than if you're white. Now, it's not entirely clear why these um, divisions have fallen the way they have done, but there's no denying, we've got the data, this is exactly what is happening. Now, do you want to take a society already quite badly um, struck by social divisions and make these even worse? Um, Does the state ever have any moral authority to deprive from a certain section of society their civil liberties? I'm not sure that's the case. I think the argument for lockdowns, to be honest, is borderline. But if you are going to um, apply them, to apply them to everybody, at least, is better than targeting people who you rightly or wrongly think pose a greater risk. 
Because let's remember that the, um, the argument here is taken on the premise that the unvaccinated pose a far greater risk than the vaccinated. But that, when you look at it and drill down, that evidence is far more shaky than you, than you might think. In Ross's cover piece, for example, he, um, I'm just reading it here, he talks about this, this German study um, which um, shows that 80% of those refusing to be vaccinated don't have a problem with vaccination. Uh, in general, they're just concerned about the safety implications of this particular vaccine. Is that, um, is that necessarily a wrong and indefensible um, position? Um, and also, when you look at the data for who passes on infections, then it's far more difficult to say that the unvaccinated pose a far greater threat than the vaccinated. Because if you are vaccinated, you're far less likely to get ill yourself, you're far less likely to end up in hospital. If you look at the hospital figures, overwhelmingly, the ICU units are full of those who didn't get vaccinated. But when it comes to passing on the virus, then the studies show it's pretty murky. That it simply isn't the case. But if you take the vaccine, you're not going to pass it on. And if you don't have the vaccine, you do. And also, let's remember there's a third category. I think this is quite important. That there's a third category of people who haven't, who haven't had the vaccine, but have had the virus. Now, there is a study um, recently showing that pre previous natural immunity is a lot more reliable than vaccinated immunity. So if somebody has had COVID, has been in bed for two weeks with COVID or worse, then that person really is un very unlikely to pass it on. So why ethically would you not include them if, in amongst the people you're, you're allowed to be given their liberties with? And also the other ethical dilemma here, and I'd be interested to, to hear thoughts on this, is what, say you're going to fire somebody for not taking the vaccine. This is what the British government has done with care home workers. No jab, no job. That's been the rules. Um, now, when I asked Sajid Javid about this, the health secretary, a few weeks ago, he said that he basically it would be a concession. He doesn't want to make a concession to those who believe anti-vax propaganda. Now, that's uh, one category of people. But what about the category of people who do not who absolutely believe in vaccination? but cannot see what medical advantage you take from being vaccinated if you're already naturally immune. A vaccine which, let's remember, could save a life of somebody in the third world who hasn't yet been offered it. So that category of people, morally, can you really fire them if you can't argue that they pose a COVID threat or a greater COVID threat than people who haven't had the virus but have not been, but have already been vaccinated? So those of you, it's far more complicated in the real world than the theoretical exercises are making out. And that's why I think you're seeing protests in Europe right now. People just reject the rather um, facile way in which vaccine passports and lockdowns for the unvaccinated are being sold. So, it, so it's useful here to see one kind of area of obvious agreement between us, which is about the, the importance of uh, focusing on what's ethically relevant. Uh, so in, in terms of transmission of the virus, that what's relevant is, is an individual's risk of transmitting the virus. And of course, if they have had a vaccine or if they've been unfortunate enough to have the infection and then have recovered, they potentially are at equivalent risk and ought to be then treated equivalently, either both locked down or both allowed to go about their normal lives. So that, I think, is uh, one of the reasons why on the continent many of the vaccine passport schemes and suggestions in terms of selective lockdowns have treated those who have the vaccination and those who've recovered from COVID similarly. The UK approach in terms of mandatory COVID vaccination for care home staff or NHS workers hasn't taken that approach and I and others have criticised the government. I totally agree that it's not fair to, to remove somebody from their job on the basis that they're 
they haven't had a vaccine where they've got evidence, they can, there is reasonable evidence that, uh, that they've had an infection and are not at risk of passing on the virus. That they can prove they've got antibodies, for example, that's a fairly easy way of doing it. So antibodies or they've had a, a positive PCR test within, a, within a, a period of six months. And indeed, that's already recognised in terms of NHS COVID pass. So there's, there's already a structure for doing that. Does, it doesn't seem like there's any sensible reason why the government can't, couldn't introduce that to their policy. But it, in terms of just stepping back to the, this question of transmission uh, and the, the approach in the continent, it's worthwhile recognising What's fundamentally, there are two reasons why somebody should get vaccinated. One is for their own health and their own well-being. And of course, when it comes to state intervention in somebody's life for their own benefit, that's, we understand that that's a paternalistic intervention. And, and the great uh, political philosopher John Stuart Mill uh, has kind of very clearly encapsulated the notion that the only justifiable reason for the state interfering in an individual's liberties is to prevent harm to others. Harm to the self is not enough. So harm to the self for, for an individual's own health is not a good reason for having a vaccine passport or selective lockdown. Harm to others might be. Now, as you point out, the effect on transmission is not as dramatic as perhaps people had, had hoped. There is a reduction in transmission with, with vaccination, but it's not as clear as those who are vaccinated pose no risk of vaccination. Those who are unvaccinated and not immune pose a huge risk. There's a difference, but it's not as large, perhaps, as we might like. But there's a different way in which the unvaccinated pose a risk to others' health. And that's through uh, getting sick and consuming scarce resources over winter. So the, the NHS is, is already, despite the fact that actually we're not facing the, the enormous spike of cases of Europe, is is already kind of groaning and, and creaking and, and in danger of falling over. But that's not uh, to do as, with COVID, is it? No, well, that's, that's because of the, the resources. It's because of the, the, the flow-on effect of COVID and the ongoing kind of uh, number of cases that are affecting our hospital. So there's a combination of factors. But if you had a, a further spike of cases with a, a significant number of individuals who are then becoming critically ill, what you'd then find is that that would pose a risk to other people, both people without COVID who couldn't then get into hospital, have their operations, have their cancer surgery, all the, the flow-on effects, and, of course, other people with COVID who would be competing with them for scarce ICU resources. So one of the, I think one of the plausible rationales for a selective lockdown in Europe, although, again, I, I agree it's debatable whether that's the right approach on balance, but one plausible basis is to say, Look, if, if our hospitals are at risk of falling over, one way of reducing that, avoiding that, is to lock down those who, to prevent them getting sick and then needing those hospital resources. I, I would say there that you need to look at the science behind this. For example, how sure are we that lockdowns really do serve as this emergency stop, which the theorists imagine that they do? If you look in the British example, for example, we have um, the, the, the virus was sent into reverse before lockdowns took place. Look at Sweden. They've had no lockdowns there. And they were twice able to force the virus into reverse by not resorting to lockdown, not depriving anybody of their civil liberty. So, uh, again, the arguments, which are pretty sweeping government powers, saying to see you're not allowed to go to work, you're not allowed to go to the pub, you're not allowed to leave your life, you're not allowed to go see your family. If this is not on a strong scientific basis... But there's really no moral argument for this at all. 
So right now, I think we're skipping the really important part, which is, does the logic actually work? And right now, I'm afraid to say, we've had 18 months of lockdowns, very mixed evidence as to whether they are effective. In Sweden, a demonstration of how liberal, liberal society can keep its values while fighting back the virus. And overall, very important questions, which many of those in the streets are raising in protests right now. Um, so I think there are really important questions, again, here about the, the effectiveness of different interventions and then their proportionality relative to the benefit. Uh, I, I think I interpret the evidence quite differently to you, that there's very clear evidence that those countries that have chosen to lock down have had, as a result, a very significantly fewer overall deaths. So Sweden has had lower deaths than some other countries, but has had very substantially more excess deaths than its immediate neighbours, neighbours with very similar populations and, and other They're very, other very different urbanisation levels. So that all, I mean, Sweden's more urbanised than Britain, so we can't really make that comparison. So uh, the UK has had dramatically more excess mortality than a number of, again, relative comparator countries on the continent. And we locked down more than anybody pretty much last year. Well, no, I mean, our lockdowns were by and large, instituted later, less stringently than, than a whole series of other countries. They, they lasted a lot longer. Britain is the case study, I'm afraid to say, for those who question the efficacy of lockdowns in keeping the, the death rate down, either amongst those with COVID, and importantly, amongst the under 65s. Our death rate is really quite high by European standards. That implies that the side effects of lockdown might be greater than we're looking at. So again, I really think we need to be very clear about the science before we're talking about depriving anybody of their basic liberty. I mean, again, so there's scientific questions, important, important questions, and then there's ethical questions. So in terms of the science, it's important to look at whether, whether lockdown work, whether they cause more harm than good overall. In terms of, how again, clear do you think what science would need to be? How clear do you think, how sure would we need to be about the science before we issue lockdowns and deprive people of civil liberty on that basis? Well, I mean, one of the challenges, of course, in a pandemic is that you have to make decisions when the evidence is imperfect and there's uncertainty. Uh, one of the interesting questions uh, has been not simply about whether to lock down, but how much to lock down and when to lock down. Of course, in the UK, we've chosen to relax lockdown earlier, uh, get anticipating that that would get a, a surge in cases before the, the winter. Uh, other countries have made different choices and are perhaps paying the price for that with now a surge of cases that coincides with the winter. Um, you have to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. Uh, I don't think it's uh, we have the luxury of waiting until there's cast iron evidence. Uh, I think we have in the UK made a series of mistakes uh, by waiting to make decisions in the past. At, at the moment, I don't think there is a pressure on, on the UK to, to make decisions acutely to lock down or to selectively lock down again, though that could change. Uh, and partly because the key factor, which is about our health system uh, being under significant threat, is we have very little room to move uh, because of the nature of our health system and its chronic uh, shortage of resources. Thanks, Fraser and Dominic. Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale and you'll get 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but we'll also send you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch Whiskey absolutely free. Hurry though, as this offer ends on Monday. Now, coming back to Westminster. The talk this week has been on Peppa Pig, a children's cartoon that the Prime Minister waxed lyrical about in a bizarre speech earlier this week. Has he lost his mojo? 
Is it all an act or does he know exactly what he's doing? I'm joined now by broadcaster Jeremy Vine. He has an incredible Boris story to tell and our political editor, James Forsyth. Jeremy, can you start by recounting that strange encounter you had with Boris Johnson a few years ago? All right, this is what happened. It was the International Securitization Awards, and I was there to hand out the awards. And most unusually, they booked somebody else to do a speech. And I, and I had no knowledge in advance of who it was, but it was Boris Johnson. He wasn't at the time even mayor of London. He was just a humble MP. And at about 9.28, he was due on in two minutes. He hadn't arrived. It got to 9.29 and a half, and the organizer's really sweating. And she says, where is he? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know him a bit, but I don't know him enough to know where he is right now. And as she was speaking, he suddenly comes in with this enormous sort of whoosh of blonde hair, disheveled clothes, the usual Boris thing. He sits down at the table. And bear in mind, the second his bum touches the seat, he really should be on stage. And his first sentence is, where am I? So I said, well, you're at the International Securitization Awards and that sign is on the screen there, Boris. And he said, well, what is, what is securitization? I'm thinking, we're on borrowed time here, mate, because they're about to announce you. So these very boofed up bankers explained to him what securitization was. It, that was a thing, by the way, that got us into all the trouble in the financial crisis. And he then took a, a menu and he turned it over and he started writing his speech. And I, at this point, I'm getting stressed because I think, I don't know if I could handle this level of, of lateness in my own life or indeed in anyone else's. So all I saw him write on the piece of paper was, was the word shark and the word sheep. That's all I saw. And he was resting the piece of paper on his thigh. And then they suddenly say, ladies and gentlemen, Boris Johnson. And he goes up, but he's left the piece of paper. So I think this will be a disaster. And he, he gets on the stage and it's almost like he's exploded out of the stage in one of those trapdoor moments with smoke and everything because he looks so completely disheveled. And people started laughing at his, at his appearance. And he said, welcome, everybody, to thee. And I've got my head in my hands because he doesn't, of course, know where he is. So he has to do the terrible thing of turning around and reading the description of the event off the wall behind him. So he said, the international security award. And he then goes through this speech. And it's clearly it's chaotic. So the first thing he says, he's very upset about the EU. Because basically a sheep died on their farm. This is the sheep story. A sheep died on their farm and they weren't allowed to bury it on the farm. They had to take it to an abattoir. So he rang the abattoir. The person's name there was Bill. No, I think it was Derek. No, no, wait, it, was, it was Clyde. No, it was Margaret. It's Margaret. Everyone starts laughing. He then goes into this ramble about his political hero is the mayor from Jaws because he kept the beaches open. Although, come to think of it, some, some children were killed by a shark. And then he tells, and this is the thing I think, I can't believe he's doing this. He tells a story which, which even people you know, who, aren't, who weren't born in the 30s have heard hundreds of times, which is about the Foreign Secretary George Brown and the fact that he was in Peru and music started and he asked somebody for a dance and the person said, there are three reasons I can't dance with you. The, the first reason is that this is the Peruvian national anthem. The second reason is that I am the Archbishop of, of Lima. And the third reason, I'm ready for the third reason. And, and he said, I, I can't remember the third reason. I can't remember the third reason. And it brings the house down. And I, I suddenly think, my goodness, this is extraordinary. I'm in the presence of genius here. This guy has somehow delivered the perfect speech even though it's fallen apart, he's rescued it. And the very last moment is he, he says, Jeremy Vine is now going to give out the awards, but they look like some sort of elongated lozenge. And he's got a piece of glass in his hand. And then he sits down. And I had some funny remarks prepared. And I realized there's absolutely no point whatsoever in me saying anything to make anybody laugh harder than they're laughing now. So I simply did the awards. And then I dropped him a line afterwards on a postcard. And it just said, the mayor of Jaws, brilliant, exclamation mark. And he dropped me a postcard back, 
Jeremy, you were fantastic. So I didn't, I didn't believe a word. So I, I sort of banked that as, oh my goodness, this guy is able to deliver a brilliant speech with no preparation. And I, as a speaker, I'm kind of interested in how that happens. Anyway, we spill forwards about a year, 18 months. And now I'm at a different event and it's the National Concrete Federation and it's 9.28 and I say, who's the other speaker? And it's Boris. And he comes in and I think, oh, here we go. And the, but the thing is, what was amazing to me is it was, it, everything was the same. 9.29 he arrives, he gets the menu. Where am I? What is it? Can I mention concrete or is it cement? He then writes shark and sheep on the piece of paper. He leaves it on the table. He starts the story about the sheep and the abattoir. And, oh, it was Margaret. Then it's the jaws and the, the mayor and the political hero. I suppose some, some young children die. And then the remarkable thing is this. He does the George Brown story. And he does, firstly, I'm the Archbishop of Lima. And secondly, this is the Peruvian national anthem. And thirdly, I can't remember the third reason. I've forgotten my own punchline. And then he takes the award and he says, it looks like some sort of elongated lozenge. And I'm looking and everyone's roaring with laughter. And... The reason this story went viral when I retold it was because I'd written it up as part of a book about just whether or not we trust what we see years ago. And of course, when he became prime minister, I just put it on my Facebook page and it went across the world because suddenly we all started thinking, wait, is this, is this an act or is it deliberate? So I have to admit, Katie, that when, when he did the thing with his speech, it all came back to me, this, uh, forgive me, forgive me. And then he tells the Peppa Pig, and I'm thinking, is this it again? Has he practiced this? And I, I don't know is the answer. But, that, but there we are. The, art, the speeches story is so interesting because it suggested that nothing about Boris was an accident. That's really interesting. And you mentioned that CBI speech. So, Jeremy, having seen that, and there are lots of uh, very stereotypical Miss Boris Johnson moments, as you say, Peppa Pig, almost losing the place. I think most people thought wouldn't even be put in there to throw people off the scent. Um, but you're not conv you're not decided either way whether that is a, meant to be a crafted act when he gave that speech or it really was just a bit of an um, unplanned mess. I've looked at it now, I think, 20 times because I, I want the answer. And the, the first thing is he has a motive for having a dishevelled CBI speech. And the motive is social care. So in the Commons, he, he didn't lose a vote, but he came pretty close with a majority of 20 or whatever on these plans, which it turns out the social care plans are going to be even worse for poorer people. So what does he do? He gives us, some people call it the dead cat. He's going to do a speech where all we talk about is this weird story about Peppa Pig and, and turning the pages. So there is, there is motive. Now I looked, when he did started this thing, which is just like the shark sheep story anyway, isn't it? Which is where he turns, he goes, oh, forgive me, forgive me. I thought he was holding blank pieces of paper, which would suggest that he'd somehow engineered this. The second thing is, I remember quite soon after he became prime minister, the incident where he was interviewed about what he does in his spare time. And he said, I like to build buses. I build big ones. I sit there. And, I, and this bus story went completely viral. And I think he realized that with a really lateral story, like Peppa Pig, like the bus, he can just take us to another place and it's really easily done. So some of it was deliberate, but I think some of it was accidental. And the thing that argues against my idea that it's all deliberate is this. When he launched his very first leadership bid, which was shambolic, it fell apart when he actually arrived on stage. Remember he had Nadine Doris in the front row and then Michael Gove suddenly pulled out. Nobody would engineer that. 
So his mishaps can't all be deliberate. So I think with the CBI, we had the Peppa Pig story and the vroom vroom stuff. I mean, the Peppa Pig was classic, Boris. That was deliberate. The accident was the pages. I, do, I mean, if the, if the pages was deliberate, we are in the presence of a master. James, do Tory MPs think they're in the presence of a master right now? Um, does it feel as though Boris Johnson's getting the best reception of his party? No, and I think the most telling thing is when you watch the clip of that moment when he loses his place in the speech. On the second and third, forgive me, I think that's one of the first times I've heard actual kind of fear in Boris Johnson's voice. I think he actually realised that he actually really had lost the place and didn't know how to start his way out of it. Now, I think Jeremy is right that a lot of the, the, the Boris persona is contrived, it's much more controlled uh, than he wants you to think. But I thought when he lost the place... It was genuine. I also think uh, Jeremy talked about a kind of possible political motive for that. I actually think that's that, 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 that losing the place happened at the worst possible moment because for Tory MPs who were worried that Downing Street was disorganised, was chaotic, the losing the place in the speech became almost a, a visual metaphor for what their concerns were. And I think it also made lots of people said, why are you trying to deliver you know, a funny speech to the CBI. If there was ever a place for a, for, a, for a worthy 40 minutes on, you know, skills training and infrastructure budgets, um, it's the CBI. And, and, and so I think, I don't, I, think, I, think, I, think, I don't think it was deliberate, but I think if it was deliberate, it, it didn't work. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, there's no doubt Boris Johnson is addicted to other people's laughter. There's no question about it. And he's got brilliant, just the very walking into the room. Look, listen to what Jennifer Arcuri says about him. He walks in the room, everyone starts laughing, you know. So he loves that. And remember a lot of this, that the, the hair famously, you know, messes up his hair before interviews and after makeup, which nobody else does. But it was all priced in, in the last general election. We, you know, we knew about it. We knew that when he launched a campaign to get rubbish out of rivers, he would fall in the river, which indeed he did. We knew about the Zitwa. We priced it all in and we gave him an 80 seat majority. You know, whichever way you voted, that's how it ended up. So I think that, uh, yes, he did. I, I agree with you, um, James. He def there was definitely a moment of fear. I wonder whether there's a little bit of residual COVID lung there where he, he gets more breathless than he needs to be. But I think at the same time, he's not in danger from Boris-style mishaps, whatever his party think, because I, it's, it's, it's part of who he is. The danger for him is panicking and doing all straight lines. The whole of COVID has been Boris's most uncomfortable experience because he can't do gags. So at last he's released into being Boris. So I think in a way, this is better territory for him. And just finally, James, uh, this week we've been hearing more grumblings from Tory backbenchers. That speech, I think, was definitely seen as another trigger. Various briefings, one that has particularly upset certain figures in 10 Downing Street to the BBC's Laura Coombsberg. A Downing Street source doesn't say which address or which floor. Um, but how seriously should we take this? How much trouble is the Prime Minister in? There are whispers of letters going to the 22 chairman. Uh, so I, I think Tory MPs are grumpy, and I, but I think the biggest danger to, to Boris Johnson is that this next few months is going to be really hard. If you look at the kind of economic backdrop, rising energy prices, rising inflation, the supply chain shortages aren't all sorted out. 
And, 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 and as Jeremy says, you know, Boris Johnson is a good times politician. He, he is never more comfortable than when he can be an optimist and when he can be funny and he can make people laugh and smile. I don't think there's going to be that much smiling in Britain in the next few months. I think it's going to be quite a hard winter. I mean, that is the biggest challenge for him. And then I think the other biggest challenge for him is, is, is detail and whether these policies match up to what he promised in the first place. I think that, the, the, as Jeremy alluded to, the row over social care. I think the, the issue there is, you know, if Boris Johnson has raised taxes to fix social care once and for all, then I think Tory MPs could kind of see the political logic for it. But if he's raised taxes to make some incremental improvements to social care, uh, out of which not everyone is a winner, then that is a very different uh, political situation. And there'll be a fair bit of Tory grumpiness about that. Jeremy James, thank you for joining Spectator TV. Next, on the show been covering the rise of Eric Zemmour, the journalist turned unlikely presidential election candidate. Over the last weekend, our own French correspondent, Freddie Gray, met him in London. They spoke at length about everything from Brexit to immigration to the culture wars in France. The whole discussion will be up on our YouTube channel. It's in French, but we've subtitled it for you. And here is a short clip. Qu'est-ce que vous allez faire pour euh, fixer, pour changer ça Vous savez, en même temps, on a connu pire entre les Français et les Anglais, euh, <rire> vu qu'on a passé des siècles à se faire la guerre. Donc bon, euh, il faut toujours relativiser. Mais plaisanterie mise à part, euh, je pense que, euh, si vous voulez, euh, les Français, Emmanuel Macron et la technocratie bruxelloise ont fait une erreur fondamentale, une erreur d'approche. C'est-à-dire qu'ils considèrent que le départ de l'Angleterre, le fameux Brexit, euh, est une erreur et que euh, les Anglais doivent payer pour cela. Et que la France et les Européens doivent leur faire payer. Euh, pour deux raisons. D'une part parce qu'ils sont des européistes acharnés euh, et qu'ils considèrent que euh, ce choix de l'Angleterre, du peuple anglais, euh, est non seulement une erreur mais une trahison euh, des idéaux euh, européistes. Et par ailleurs, ils veulent dissuader euh, les autres pays qui seraient tentés, je ne sais pas moi, la Hongrie, euh, vous voyez, euh, d'autres pays comme ça, ou même la France, euh, qui seraient tentés de quitter l'Union européenne et de, et, de, et de disloquer leur idéal. Euh, je pense que cette, euh, cette approche idéologique et moralisatrice, c'est pas bien, on va vous punir, hein, comme un enfant, euh, n'est pas appropriée à la situation. D'abord parce que c'est contre-productif. Euh, euh, et que euh, les Anglais euh, se, se cabrent à juste titre et donc euh, eux aussi euh, font montre de mauvaise volonté, on va le voir pour, pour l'histoire de la pêche. Et en plus, euh, parce que, si vous voulez, je pense qu'il euh, faut respecter le choix du peuple anglais. Oui. Euh, voilà, tout simplement. C'est démocratique, c'est respectueux des Anglais, c'est respectueux de ce qu'ils ont choisi. Euh, je trouve que même que les élites euh, conservatrices anglaises, en tout cas une partie, euh, s'est honorée d'avoir respecté le choix du peuple anglais, contrairement aux, aux élites politiques françaises qui, vous vous en souvenez peut-être, en 2005, quand la France avait dit non au référendum et au traité, au, au traité constitutionnel européen, n'ont rien trouvé de mieux que de faire voter ce même traité européen par les parlementaires. Ça, c'était indigne. Je trouve le comportement des élites anglaises beaucoup plus noble. En revanche, ce que je voulais dire... C'est que, évidemment, nous devons défendre les intérêts des pêcheurs français. Je trouve vraiment cruel de la part 
des Anglais d'avoir comme ça supprimé les droits de pêche de, de pêcheurs français qui sont là depuis des années, j'allais dire depuis des siècles, parce que certains ont des licences depuis très longtemps. Euh, je ne trouve pas ça faire, comme on dit euh, en, en Angleterre. Euh, très, très anglais, ouais. euh, voilà, je, je trouve ça unfair. Oui. Euh, je trouve ça euh, vraiment euh, euh, très dommageable pour, 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 pour ces pêcheurs français qui n'ont que ça pour vivre. Freddy joins me on Spectator TV now. Freddy, tell me what struck you most about that conversation. Uh, well, I suppose what struck me most about him was his team, who seemed very, very stressed. Uh, they'd organised this very sort of hectic tour of London in which Zamor was supposed to come and, and meet the, as many of the French voters that there are in London. There's hundreds of thousands of them um, here. So it's actually quite an important sort of pit stop for anyone wanting to be president. Uh, and Zamor did not get a warm reception, it's fair to say. Sadiq Khan made it very clear that he, didn't, he wasn't welcome in London. Uh, and uh, the Tory party, I think, um, called off and cancelled various meetings that he'd arranged because he's considered toxic because of his statements about Islam and immigration. So they were a bit stressed. I think they were hoping it would go uh, more smoothly than it did. Um, and then as for him himself, uh, he was sort of quite uh, gregarious, I suppose, quite charismatic. Um, he's a huge phenomenon in France. They don't know a lot about him in London, but I mean, if you talk to, I have French family, my mother's French. If you talk to, when I talk to my cousins, he is the talking point. And so that's why it seems that people say it's like a Trump-like moment in France, but it's certainly true that it's a, it's a moment where he is the conversation starter for a lot of things. And Freddie, I suppose more importantly, how is he being perceived in France in terms of the polls? Uh, well, I mean, was pretty well. He's had a slight dip, uh, but he was coming second in, in some polls, in the, in the presidential polls, still substantially behind Macron, but ahead of Le Pen, which is the key thing for him, is that he wants to effectively um, swallow Le Pen's vote and then try and take Le Republican, the old centre-right vote as well. Uh, I mean, the latest poll suggests that's had a slight dip, but nothing very significant. He is still the, the media story. He's all anyone's talking about in the press uh, because he's a journalist, I think, and because he, he's a TV, he's a person who's done a lot of TV and he knows what creates interest and what creates a good story. Do we have any sense of whether Macron is worried, even if he is still uh, relatively comfortably ahead? Uh, well, I mean, no, I don't think Mac Macron's ever given any public indication of being concerned about Zemmour. I think he has said critical things of him. Uh, but it's interesting that last year, um, no, sorry, two years ago, I think, when uh, Zemmour was uh, attacked in the street, uh, the next day Macron rang him to sort of offer uh, his sympathies, uh, but also to talk through what he thought Zemmour had misunderstood about his leadership. So, and, and it's also interesting that the two men are quite similar. Um, Macron didn't have a party. Uh, he invented his own party. He sort of uh, swallowed the, the centre-left and the left to a certain extent, um, and the centre-right to a certain extent. He, he, he made his own political phenomenon, and Zemmour's trying to do the same thing. And just finally, Freddie, what do you, with your pundit head on, um, give Zamora's his chances when it comes to the election? I'm thinking a little bit further ahead. Would you place a bet on him? Well, somebody once told me never to make political predictions, and I've always ignored them. 
to that's what we like peril. on the show because otherwise uh, it'd be quite so a so I will say that my hunch at the moment is that he will not win uh, I think he has a chance of um, getting into the final two it's a sort of runoff system in France uh, but I cannot see him beating Macron at the moment but obviously France is a very febrile place at the moment there's a lot of talk about a sort of coming civil war because a lot of the cities are in such a bad way um so you know it could it could be a very dramatic election and i just wondered on that by having some more in the race say that he you know is not going to win um is he changing the discourse is he changing what topics is it meaning that macron is having to talk about some things he wouldn't otherwise talk about or is it more actually that macron if if anything needs to prove that he is even more the polar opposite I think Macron is pivoting right, and he, he probably would have done that without Zemmour because uh, the left is in a sort of terrible state at the moment in France. The old Socialist Party has, has sort of imploded, partly because of Macron. Uh, there's Mélenchon, who's the sort of Corbyn figure, if you like, of France, uh, but he's not improving his polling at the moment. So where Macron can win votes is by pivoting to the right, and that's by saying very tough things about Islam uh, in, in, in French cities and by, uh, by talking about immigration in tough terms, but also probably not actually doing that much in terms of policy. So uh, I think Macron knows how to deal with the threat of Zemmour, which is to uh, pivot right. Freddie, thanks very much. Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale and you'll get 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but we'll also send you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch Whiskey absolutely free. Hurry though, as this offer ends on Monday. Next, from France to China, where the disappearance of a tennis star and former mistress to a high-ranking communist official has led to renewed calls to boycott Beijing's Winter Olympics. In this week's issue, Cindy Yu covers the Peng Shui affair and writes more generally about the mistress culture in China. She joins me now together with Vince Cable, former leader of the Liberal Democrats and author of China, Engage, Avoid the New Cold War. Cindy, to start, can you just tell us what's going on with this story about Peng Shui? Yeah, so this is a tennis player who has uh, had for a while disappeared after she accused a former Chinese vice premier of uh, a three-year affair with her, which started with non-consensual sex. So it was pretty explosive allegations that she was making on Weibo at the beginning of November. Um, And in my article, I look more widely at the mistress culture and the lifestyle that a lot of these successful Chinese men lead, um, an almost expectation that they have multiple women on the side as well as their actual wife and pen was one such woman, except the explosive part about what she said is that it was you know, non-consensual to start with. And since then, uh, she has been heard from very little until about last week, when a series of very bizarre proof-of-life videos and images started coming out of essentially Chinese state media saying, you know, what are you all fussing about in the West? She's clearly safe. She look at her, she's signing tennis balls at this uh, live uh, tennis tournament, or she's going to a restaurant with her friends and her coach. So this is just all Western media hysteria. Except the official line doesn't acknowledge what she accused this uh, former uh, vice premier of doing. So it's, it's funny line from China at the moment where, you know, Peng Shui is supposedly safe, yet nobody is acknowledging that her statement has been censored and that her statement should be looked into because she accused someone of rape. 
And Cindy, when it comes to the story of Peng Shiran, the efforts uh, by the Chinese state media to say, you know, she is fine, what's the fuss about? Um, this is a particular interest in relation to the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Can you, can you talk us through that? Yeah, of course. I mean, rumblings have been happening for a while now about boycotting the Winter Olympics, uh, you know, various human rights abuses in particular. Uh, what's happening in the Xinjiang region has led to MPs in the UK, for example, Tim Loughton, to call it the genocide games and argue that we should be boycotting that. This Pantrai stuff is just the latest in a series of, you know, uh, reasons, I guess, to not cooperate or not give China the, 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 the PR coup that a Winter Olympics would be and our diplomatic presence would be. So you see a renewed push for that. But of course, it also hits closer to home because Peng Shui is a sportswoman herself and the Women's Tennis Association, who looks after her, has said that they might cancel China events next year. And so if that is happening, where does that leave the Winter Olympics uh, in February next year? So we see this renewed push um, and, you know, the government hasn't ruled it out, essentially, a boycott. And the Biden administration certainly is looking at it as well. Vince, um, when it comes to this idea of a potential boycott, it's if it happens, you have a situation where other countries, as Cindy says, are considering it. What do you think will be going through the government's minds? What's, what's at stake here in terms of a boycott of the Games? Well, it depends what you mean by a boycott. Um, if, if sportsmen and sportswomen spontaneously decide uh, that they're not going to participate because of what's happened to Peng or the wider considerations, well, that's their choice, and it, it would send quite a powerful message because the activity of the leading sports personalities who've spoken up in this case, the Women's Tennis Association, have been very powerful in their influence. But that's quite different from governments coming in and saying to athletes, you cannot go, we forbid you from travelling to China to participate. So what, what I think people mean by a boycott is what's now been called a diplomatic boycott. But I struggle to see what would be the point of this. I mean, not having a few ambassadors turning up to the opening ceremony, I mean, it's neither here nor there. Um, but imposing a boycott on the athletics world, I think, would be a very big step and a very dangerous one, would not reflect well on us. Uh, we had experience of this, if you remember the Moscow Olympics, when the retaliation with the Atlantic, uh, Atlanta Olympics, it simply had the effect of diminishing international sport. It was bad for the participants, bad for spectators, did absolutely nothing whatever to improve relationships between countries. So it, it depends what we mean, whether this is a voluntary withdrawal by sports people or something imposed in a rather clumsy way by Western governments to make a propaganda point. Cindy, if, the, if we were to see a diplomatic boycott, which I think sounds like the more likely option, um, it'd be very drastic to ban athletes. I think a lot of people at home wouldn't really notice a diplomatic boycott. Um, how would the Chinese government see it? Well, this is a very interesting thing. I, I'm, I mean, frankly, I, I'm not sure because we saw from the 2008 Beijing Olympics how much stock they put into uh, the PR coup that that was. So much money was spent. It was incredibly well choreographed. Um, you know, thousands of Chinese dancers and actors and musicians enrolled into that. And it was seen in China as a way of, you know, China announcing that it's coming back onto the world stage, having you know, come seven years after the WTO accession. Winter Olympics 
Olympics in general are not as important as, as viewers know. Um, so, you know, does this matter in the same way? Um, but, you know, I would have thought that they would, if they wanted to save face, because it looks like the Biden administration might boycott it, they might say, you know, because of COVID, you don't have to come. You know, you're going to have to quarantine for four weeks because China's borders are still not open. But what's interesting is that last week they announced that Putin actually is going to the Winter Olympics. So I think the Chinese state does care and it does want it to be a success. So, you know, Vince asked, what's the point? I mean, I guess the point is just to not give them face uh, and to, you know, take a stand on human rights abuses that you think you can't, you know, have this kind of diplomatic relation to can't give the kind of PR coup to a, to a government that some argue is genocidal. And Vince, how do you think the government is doing when it comes to that relationship with China? Because we saw COP26, an effort to bring China in. Um, there was a sense that actually you, you have to work with China, particularly when it comes to um, those climate targets, if you're going to have the impact. But yet we are hearing a lot of uh, negative comments about China. Uh, the new Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, has taken on quite a hawkish tone. Well, I'm very much for engagement where possible. Obviously, there are a lot of difficulties, uh, differences in values, difference in system. Uh, but, you know, th there are so many things we have to do with China. I mean, not, you mentioned COP and the um, statement, joint statement with Kerry and the Chinese negotiator was one of the best things that came out of it. But, you know, pandemic management, this uh, a very alarming proliferation of nuclear weapons within China and internationally. I mean, these are things we have to talk to them about. Um, not to mention the fact that, you know, the world economy is highly integrated. You know, leading Western companies um, are deepening their relationship with China at the present time. They're not pulling out. So, you know, w w they're part of the, the world system and we have to talk to them. And nothing could be worse than just saying we refuse to talk to you because we don't like a certain aspect of your regime. They're completely foolish and counterproductive but you know there are ways in which individual westerners the sportsmen the sporting associations which have a great deal of soft power um, can communicate their disapproval um, and if Peng uh, for example doesn't appear at the Australian Open which I think is six days before the Winter Olympics it's quite possible that, that sporting bodies will take it into their own hands to, to make a demonstration of feeling. And that's a much better way of doing it. I mean, I rather identify with the views of Lord Coe, Sebastian Coe, our great Olympian, who made the point that, you know, international sporting events like the London Olympics have their own important um, message about, you know, completely global system and global participation. And we shouldn't allow politicians for you know short-term tactical reasons to ruin it. And Cindy, do you agree with that in the sense that uh, if Peng's story has become very pivotal to, I suppose, uh, the Chinese government, China's standing when it comes to the Olympics, if she isn't, for example, that, at that Australian Open, it is going to start to raise alarm bells and lead to not even a government-ordered sanction, but just general, um, you know, more condemnation from lots of places, which is probably harder for the China, Chinese government to tackle than a few diplomats not turning up. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about this story is that it has so much cut through and it has so much attention and, you know, front page news in a way that a lot of China's other um, transgressions don't get the same attention. You know, it's, it's quite interesting that, for example, the people who want to boycott the Beijing Winter Olympics talk about the Uyghurs and, and, and the, and the uh, internment camps. But, you know, that hasn't had nearly as much cut through as one tennis player going missing. Um, but I think that way before the Australian Open, we're going to see this Pen Shrai story sizzle out. And I say that very cynically because I think that Pen is not going to pursue her allegations. I think she's clearly under some kind of house arrest at the moment when life returns to normal for her in the next few months. Um, because she hasn't done anything wrong. She's, she's only made these allegations. And I think that the Chinese state, by co-opting her social network, as we saw with her coach and her friends in these videos, you know, I think they can get her to basically drop the claims uh, and go back to pursuing something of her career. So I, I think that by February next year, this story will be gone because, excepting our memories, of course, but I don't think Penn will be actively, you know, in trouble or pursuing any of it because that's just how this kind of thing works in China. Um, I guess to Vince's point about, you know, do the Olympics hold a different perspective? I mean, I just it just depends on what the Chinese think of it, right? I mean, the people in China will think this is the West or this is the world recognising China. And maybe that's a recognition that Western politicians don't want to give. So that politicisation may be inevitable. And just finally, Vince, when it comes to uh, the Beijing Games, we saw uh, with the London Olympics, uh, ultimately that was not the Winter Olympics, and as Cindy says, the Winter Olympics can have less significance. Um, but how important is it to a host country when they do an event like this? Is, is it really a tool for soft power? Well, I, I'm sure they hope it is, uh, just, just as when we had the uh, Olympics in London, there was a hope that it would reflect well on the UK, as, in, as indeed it did. So, you know, these things do matter to an extent, but you know, it can go badly. Um, you know, our recollection of the Greek Olympics would have just, I think, disorganisation, lack of preparation. The, the Russian Winter Olympic Games in Sochi were an embarrassment. You know, people realised that the Russians had put on a massively exaggerated show and vast amounts of money were wasted. It didn't reflect well on them at all. So, yeah, there is the potential for um, a soft power advantage, but it's, um, I think, probably not quite as great as... Uh, uh, the Chinese officials believe. But but going back to the original question about the significance of this single tennis player, I mean, the fact that powerful men can assault women and believe they can get away with it, I mean, because it's not unique to China. I mean, President Trump had a bit of a track record here. I mean, what, what is significant about the Chinese case is that the way the state mobilized behind one of their own, a very powerful figure, and tried to hush this up. And that's why continued exposure, which will happen if the sporting bodies continue to press and if there is uh, continued agitation around the Australian Open. I mean, that's the kind of thing I think that really matters. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks, Vince. Finally, what makes a classic? In this week's magazine, Henry Elliott, an editor at Penguin Classics, wonders what makes a book stand the test of time. To discuss, Sam and Henry join me now. Henry, to start, what do you think the characteristics of a classic book are? Can we even come up with any? Well, gosh, I think that term classic is really tricky to pin down. And I used to think that, you know, there were some characteristics you could pick out to define a classic. You know, maybe it would have to have literary quality, 
Uh, maybe it would have to have had some historical significance. Maybe it was a great bestseller in its day or it changed the course of a genre or started a new one. Or maybe um, it has to have an enduring reputation. People still need to be talking about it for it to be called a classic. But the trouble is with all these rules, I actually, you know, you can always find um, exceptions to the rules and, and, and none of them quite work. And for me, the best definition of what a classic is, is the one which Ezra Pound came up with in the 1930s, when he said that a classic has a certain eternal and irrepressible freshness. It's something to do with the reading experience. When you read a classic, you know it's got that, it's still alive after all the time and all the space it's traveled through. Sam, do you agree with that? Can you think of any uh, uh, similar characteristics that come to mind? I do. No, I think I think that point actually, I mean, the very obvious thing that I think most people would say about classics, which I think more or less holds, is that they so-called stand the test of time. Yes. And Pound's quote nods to that with that idea that it's it's an eternal freshness. I mean, obviously, you know, any good work of literature is fresh on reading. Um, but, you know, lots of them go off after 100 years. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that really, I mean, the sense of a classic, I think, has been generally that it's something that survives. And, of course, it started out being something that survived and has turned into a publisher's marketing term um, because, obviously, classic has a sort of ring of approbation about it. As uh, I think Seamus Heaney said, you know, poet is a praise word and so is classic. Um, So, you know, it has acquired this sort of marketing sense I mean, I think the point about about the the way that classics influence things is maybe mm-hmm. worth taking into account because so many of them are so odd and sui generis. So I mean, you take some Moby Dick is a very, very, very bizarre book. And so is Tristram Shandy. Both of them are acknowledged classics. But at the same time, both of them have sort of, you know, many years later than they were published, kind of influenced various styles and ideas and ways of presenting things so that kind of massively textual um you know halfway between a novel and an encyclopedia and a myth Moby Dick format initially the bible got there first but Moby Dick (laughs) took that into fiction and you know Tristram Shandy people have been wrestling with the ideas of Tristram Shandy in the same way they've been wrestling with the ideas in Marcel Duchamp's urinal for years and years and years on no, you're absolutely right. And I think, um, uh, you know, I think that's always the case when you read a book which is an established classic, it's always stranger and, and sort of odder than you were expecting. It's, you know, you almost by definition, you approach a classic with a preconception of what it's going to be like because it has this reputation, it has an aura around it. And then when you actually read the words, it's often much more bizarre than you would have expected. Well, it is that, that old chestnut, isn't there, that... that you know, genius creates the taste by which it will be received. And, you know, so many of these extraordinary works that have now become completely canonical are works that actually just created, you know, created a sensibility that allowed them to be understood. Yeah, I completely agree. And it, and it often takes time for a classic to be acknowledged. I mean, you know, you take a book like The Great Gatsby, which was pr- practically ignored at the time, and Fitzgerald died thinking his work had been forgotten. And now that's considered perhaps the greatest work of American literature from the 20th century. But I think it's interesting you, you use the word canonical, because this is some something that I've been thinking about recently, that I think there used to be a real association between that word classic and the idea of an established canon, a kind of received canon that's imposed from 
that's inherited from above and, and that's imposed by critics and scholars. And I feel that right now we're at a bit of a tipping point, that we're moving beyond the idea of an established canon. In a way, today, it feels almost ridiculous that there could be a single list that comp comprises the essential books for every reader in the world. I see the job of a publisher like Penguin to be much more about mapping out this incredible literary landscape, sort of scouting the territory and signposting these amazing uh, books, you know, the, these areas of outstanding natural beauty in this kind of landscape, rather than sort of dictating, saying these are the books one should read, these are the best. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I completely agree. I mean, I think we probably agree in substance more than we would in the way we express it. But I think we still have canons. They're probably more plural and more complex and more three-dimensional than they were. But the idea which is pretty fun fundamental to the activity of literary critics and people in my line of work, i.e. Middlebrow book reviewers, is that it's possible to say that some books are better than others and that some are more influential than others. And obviously, the canon as it was, you know, for the last 50, 60, 70 years, we've been, you know, complaining. I mean, even when I was at university, the sort of running joke was, you know, DWEMs, dead white European males, and we'd have these conversations about the beards of the great western authors and you know it, um and the idea that the canon as it was constituted in the you know i guess early 20th century late 19th century was exclusionary and very kind of narrow and monocular and focused basically on old dead bearded blokes um but i think the idea of a canon or several canons that relate to each other is in no way dead. Um, I mean, it's simply it's simply sort of changed, um, and I don't think that's that's the worst thing. I mean, I, I quite like the absolute definitiveness, though, of someone like F. R. Leavis, who I think begins the Great Tradition with words to the effect of, "The Great Tradition consists of George Eliot, Henry James, Joseph Conrad, possibly Jane Austen, and one book by Dickens, and that's it." And um, Henry, when we're looking to the books coming out today. Um, do you think it is possible for critics, uh, perhaps people such as Sam, to look at those books and declare that this is going to be a classic of tomorrow? I think it's really difficult. I think it's very difficult. I mean, I think this is where the word classic as a marketing tool comes in. And, you know, I think if, if things are acclaimed an instant classic, I think that's, that's sort of hopeful thinking, really. I mean, I think... As we've said, really, the thing that has to happen is time has to pass to, to see whether a, a book can endure and become a classic. And so all we can have is a kind of best guess. And I think that's very tricky. My, my sort of gut feeling is that it's going to be, as Sam, you were saying, it's going to be those authors who've changed the direction of literature, who've done something new, something original, which will go on to influence others in the years to come. And so I guess... You know, looking around at who's writing today, I guess that could be Colson Whitehead or maybe Hilary Mantel. Um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, but perhaps. Um, but very hard to very hard to pull names out, I'd say. Yeah, I tend to file future classic under the fatuous things that reviewers say in the hopes of being quoted on the paperback 
department and <laughs> well, Sam, excise it a... from their copy when I can find it. Well, Sam, just as a difficult final question to you, um, if you had to have a best guess of what you think the classics of tomorrow, that any that come to mind, I mean, I wonder, you know, if you look at a book such as the Sally Rooney books, something that seems to dominate lots of discourse, um, you know, in the in the media across the world, do you think Sally Rooney uh, is going to be an author of classics in, you know, 50 years' time, 100? Well, I slightly recuse myself from that question on the grounds of my answer to the last one. Um, I think what I could say to sort of sidestep it is the books that make a lot of noise in the media are not necessarily the ones that are going to live. And, you know, an instance, I've been looking into the history of children's literature and, you know, what was selling then and what we now think, you know, Alice in Wonderland is, you know, instant. That was the classic. That's the turning point. And in some ways that's true. But what that ignores is that the now almost completely forgotten bonkers imperialist adventure teller, um, G.A. Henty, was actually the person really making the market in children's literature at the time. And so, you know, the fuss in the media certainly does not a future classic make. Sam, Henry, thanks for joining. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. Thanks for watching and do join us again next week.